My name is Malcolm. I lead the church here at Dundonald. If you're here for the first time, thanks for coming. And if you're joining us online, thank you also for taking the time to be with us. Over the last few weeks, we've been exploring a series of big questions. And tonight, I want to ask a relatively simple question. The answer is more complex like all of these things. Um, How can I be happy? Well, you've just heard the story of one man and his pursuit of happiness and where it led him, uh, so beautifully given. Could you turn with me for a moment in a Bible, if you can find one, to uh, the book of Psalms. You'll need to keep your Bible open because we're going to be moving around a bit tonight. But I just want to read uh, just one Psalm, or at least a part of a Psalm, to help us kind of ground what we're going to say in context tonight. There are two passages I'd like you to to look at, both in the Psalms for the moment. First of all, Psalm 34. My Bible is the New Revised Standard Version, and um, each Psalm, well, some of the Psalms have a setting explained when they were written as far as we can understand. And at the beginning of this one, it says, of David, in other words, David wrote this Psalm, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, so that he drove him out, and he went away. This wasn't an easy moment in David's life. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, And let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fears. Look to him and be radiant. So your faces shall never be ashamed. This poor soul cried and was heard by the Lord and was saved from every trouble. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who take refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his holy ones, for those who fear him have no want. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now jump forward to Psalm 46. This is a psalm about God defending his people. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. Selah. That means stop and think about what you've just read. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it when the morning dawns. The nations are in uproar. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah, stop and think about it. Come behold the works of the Lord. See what desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease 
to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted amongst the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Stop and think about that. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. There's an old phrase. Um, you'll all have heard it. It's actually based on two verses from the Bible. First of all, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 15, and Isaiah chapter 22, verse 13. And they're kind of sandwiched together in this old English adage, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Those two verses together have been combined to create this kind of pithy statement about what life is all about. Get what you want, when you want, how you want, as fast as you want, because you're a long time dead. You may as well enjoy life while you're living because you're a long time dead. That's the kind of um, modern way of looking at the world. Get what you can as quick as you can. And to be happy, well, what is that? What does that mean? What is it? What is it? When I say to you, how could you be happy? What would make you happy? I wonder what your answer would be. In, Matthew, in Mark chapter 8, verses 36 to 38, Jesus tells the story of a very successful businessman. And he built a barn, but he was too successful, so he built a bigger barn, thinking that that would make him even more successful because he'd have room to put all his stuff. Here is a materialist in the Bible just living for stuff, 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 stuff. And he was confronted that night by the reminder that his soul would be required of him. It wasn't going to make him happy. The world is full of things that promise happiness and deliver misery. From addictions to power to wealth to sex, the more you have of it, the more you need of it. It's really interesting. I don't have time to go into this tonight, and some of you will be glad I'm not going into it tonight because you might squirm a little. But in the 21st century, in the last 50 years, we're having sex less and less and less. Since the 1960s, men and women are having less sex and being more frustrated with it. It's not delivering. This huge revolution that was supposed to bring freedom and expression and joy and all of this kind of um, wonderful existential ooh hasn't delivered. We're wealthier than we've ever been, which we're, but we're taking more antidepressants than we ever have. We've got more communication. We can travel easier. We can go further. We can see more places. The world has opened up to us. We live in a global village, yet we feel more isolated than we've ever felt. Who would have thought 20 years ago? I remember as a little boy, and I was a little boy once. Thursday nights were my night. I would go over to Jimmy Stewart's van in Rathcool with 30p, big spender. And I'd get a bottle of da a, a can of Diet a can of Coke. There wasn't such a thing as Diet Coke. It was just Coke. A can of Coke, a Mars bar, a pack of potato, cheese, and onion crisps. And I'd come home, and I was set for the night. <laughs> Seven o'clock, top of the pops. <laughs> Seven thirty, tomorrow's world. Anybody remember any of these? Eight o'clock, switch over to channel four for um, either the Crystal Maze or the Adventure Game. We break between 8.55 and 9 when the ads are on to go to the loo. 
and then come down for nine o'clock and LA Law. Who remembers LA Law? You're all saying that we were all in church praying for people like you. <laughs> 10 o'clock, question time. Loved it with Robin Day. He'd introduce all the guests with that big dicky bow. I'm only speaking to a certain generation now. And after he'd introduced them all, he'd go, there we are and here we go. And the first question is from the gentleman in the back row. That was, that was how I did. That was how I did Thursday nights. But there used to be occasionally, it was on and then it was off and then it was on and then it was off. Um, Star Trek. And you would have um, Captain, Cap, uh, Captain James T. Kirk related to Sam there. And he would hit this thing on his chest and say, beat me up, Scotty. And occasionally he'd look at his screen and he could talk to it. But we haven't got the beat me up, Scotty hit. But we've now got the freedom to talk to people on the other side of the world. Who ever thought that that was possible? I can look at a screen. I did it um, just yesterday and talked to my son and my daughter-in-law in Cardiff. Doesn't even cost me anything. I can talk to people on the other side of the world. We have greater freedoms, more ability to communicate than we've ever had. And yet we're more isolated than we've ever been. All this freedom that we've got isn't making us any happier. How many of us remember having to go outside to go to the toilets? Ugh, there must be more. <laughs> Newspapers cut into little squares on a <laughs> nail. That was our deluxe double. If it was double quilted, it was two sheets. <laughs> we all have, who, who now has an outside toilet in this room? We've more stuff than we've ever had. We've more freedom than we ever had. I can remember going to bed and getting up in the morning and the ice was on the inside of the window. <laughs> central heating, my central heating was my big brother lying in bed beside me with a ye yellow Campbellwick quilt wrapped around me and he would beat the living daylights out of me to get it. We've more than we've ever had and we're more miserable than we've ever been. We're sadder than we've ever been. North Belfast has the highest rate of suicide, not in Northern Ireland, not in Ireland, not in Great Britain, not in Europe, but in the world. Four miles from here. Higher rate of suicide than anywhere else. Between the ages of 25 and 55. My nephew was 25 when he killed himself. My brother-in-law, four months later, 55 from North Belfast. There's something wrong with how we define happiness. Whatever it is that we're looking for, we're not finding it at the bottom of a bank balance or the bottom of a wallet or the bottom of a needle or the bottom of a, a family even. So what is happiness? How can I be happy? I think the Bible teaches a very simple principle. And it is that the only place, the only location of lasting happiness is God. Now, those of you that have been Christians for years and years will think, that's right. You know, if I've got God in my family, that's all I need. That's not what I said. Your family will not ultimately be there forever. Only God can bring a happiness that will last forever. And it is easy. 
I know that there may be people that are not yet Christians watching tonight here or in the room. It's easy for Christians to say to you, you know, what you need is God if you've got God. But what they're actually saying is, what you need is God and all the stuff that I've got. What I'm saying to you is the only thing that can give you lasting happiness is God. If everything else was taken away from you tonight, everything and everyone, would he be enough? See, I think honestly, most of us would say no. In our heads, we would say yes, but in our hearts, we would say no. God and children, God and my husband, God and my wife, God and my mum, God and my dad, God and my health, God and this, God and that. But the Bible says it's only God. It's only God that can provide a happiness that will never be taken away from you. There's a man in America who's been writing for a while on an idea called Christian hedonism. His name's John Piper. He has cancer. And he's not very well. He started writing about this in the 1980s um, as he thought more and more and more about what it meant to be happy and where happiness comes from. I commend some of his writing to you. He's actually borrowed from a number of other people over the years. And I'd like to explore this idea by commenting on some of John's work, but also by digging around um, some of the other things that other people down through the years have said about this to help you understand that my urging, my encouragement to you is to make God the center of your life so that you can find true happiness, true contentment, true purpose, true meaning, something that will not go away. And it can be summed up in this simple little phrase, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When he is all you need, something changes about the way you live. Something is transformed at the very inside of who you are when you discover God is enough. But I want to warn you of something. This sermon should come with a, a health warning. The title might sound really cool. How can I be happy? The content could change your life forever. Because to say to God, I want you to be the center of my life is the most dangerous, faith-filled prayer. To say, I want you to be the radiant source of my joy and my strength and my meaning and my purpose. I'm not sure many Christians even have the courage to pray that. Because it involves displacing all those things that shouldn't be at the center of your life and allowing God to sit at the center of your life. The reward of it, the result of it is liberating. It's life-giving, it's hope-giving, it's, it's, it's empowering, but it's a dangerous prayer. We are, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Over the years, I think I've met a handful of truly happy people. I don't mean people that are kind of Cheshire grin happy. You know the ones that you can only stick about 10 minutes with? I don't mean them. I mean people that no matter what they face, exhibit a happiness. One of them is a man called Pat. He's nearly 100 now. 
He and his wife were part of a church that um, I led in Basingstoke. And one day he was telling me a story. Annie is his second wife. It was 1947. And uh, commercial airplanes had just begun to develop. And he lived on the Isle of Wight. And he was going to collect his wife and two daughters. I don't know what the name of the plane was. I can't remember. But he was standing at the airfield that was flying from Southampton or somewhere to the Isle of Wight. And as he was standing, he saw the plane coming into land. And his wife and two daughters waved out the window at him. And then the plane exploded. And the joy of God, 50 years later, radiated out of every part of this man's life. It wasn't a joy that was so deep that you couldn't see it. There was a genuine joy, a genuine peace, a genuine hope, a genuine sense of meaning and significance and the beauty of life. He was a Latin, he's a Latin scholar, just a remarkable man whose life exuded joy. Another is a namesake of mine called Malcolm. He and his, when I, I never met another Malcolm until I went to the Gold Hill, the church I led before coming here. And there were nine Malcolms in our church. We had a small group ministry and I suggested that we had a small group for Malcolms. I thought it would have been quite a good idea, but nobody wanted to join it. Malcolm is almost near 100 as well. And um, his first wife um, died. And many years later, well, a few years later, he married again, had a full family. And um, his family for his 80th birthday said to him, um, what would you like to do for your 80th birthday? And he said, I'd really like to go to Bletchley Park, which is where the Enigma machine was designed for decoding messages from the Second World War from the Nazis. And he knew his wife worked in the civil service because she wasn't allowed to tell him anything else. She died just after the war. And he's walking around, um, he's walking around this, this huge site. And on the wall is a, is a list of all the people who worked on the Enigma machine. And there's his wife's name. He never knew she was a decoder. He went on to marry somebody else. They had four children. Um, you'd never seen a man that exuded so much joy. He can hardly walk. He struggles with illness. Life has taken its toll on him. But there's a joy about the guy. There's a, there's a, there's a life about him that really inspires you. Uh, they live in a relatively large house and his four children kept saying, you, know, you need to downsize, Dad. You need to downsize. Dad, you've got to downsize. This house is too big. You really need to downsize. So about three Christmases ago, he said to his children, okay, uh, your mother and I have decided to downsize and we'd like to show you where we're going. And they said, oh, great. So they all got into a people carrier, went to the cemetery and he showed them a double plot. <laughs> he said, we're downsizing there. Don't ask me again. He had a deep sense of joy, a really significant sense of purpose. Have you met somebody like that? The people that I've met with a deep sense of joy have gone through great trial. They have scars of loss and sadness and sorrow, but there's something about them. And you look at them and they're like a magnet. Some of them are sitting in this room. I'm not going to point you out because you'll help me later. You are like a magnet to me. I love spending time with you because there's something in your life that radiates joy. I don't mean superficial happiness. 
I don't mean happy because you've had a nice meal or happy because you won the pools, remember your tithe. God can take the wealth of the Egyptians. I, that was a joke, don't worry. I'm not suggesting you play the pools, you're okay. Turn to the person beside you and say, he didn't really mean that. <laughs> Some of you aren't so sure. A deep joy. And it's like a magnet that attracts. It's like something that just wants to draw people in. I want to be one of those people. And there are a number of ideas about where we can get to or how we get to being happy. One of the most traditional in Christian theology has been that we just keep disciplining ourselves and we keep rejecting all the things that bring temporary pleasure. It's more of a stick than a carrot. Beat them into shape. I'm not sure that's how the Bible presents joy. You heard from Psalm 34 and you heard from Psalm 46 about people who are so content with God, so caught up with him, so captured by him that he is the center of their thinking and their world and their living. Listen to this from Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will grant you the desires of your hearts. Or Psalm 16, at your right hand are miseries forevermore. No. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Embedded within the Bible is this idea that the source of true joy, true contentment, true satisfaction is God. Not the dope, as you've discovered six days a week. Not money, not sex, not power, not wealth, not influence, not control, not popularity, not even family. God. God in all his glory, God in all his power, God in all his mercy is the source of delight. And the Bible doesn't forbid delight doesn't say that it's not important. Instead of that, what's happened is we have settled our desires on lesser things. We've allowed ourselves to be content with lesser joy. Joy that doesn't last forever. Joy that comes and goes. Joy that is dependent on circumstances. It's not that our desires are wrong. It's that they're wrongly placed. I want you to think about that. As you hear the words, there are a couple of different things from a great East Belfast man, C.S. Lewis, who in a book called The Severe Mercy, if you're taking notes on page 189, said this, it is Christian duty for everyone to be as happy as they can. I wonder if you believe that. There's an awful lot of people in Northern Ireland that believe that the duty of a Christian is to be miserable that our faces are always to be tripping us. Have you ever heard the phrase, look at her, she's got a face like a lurgan spade. Some of us think that because we were Christians, we're not allowed to smile. We're not allowed to laugh. We're not allowed to enjoy life. We're not allowed to have joy. But what if joy is one of the consequences of the Christian life? What if desire is God-given? And the issue is not the desire, it's where we place it. It's what we do with it. Slightly longer quote from C.S. Lewis for you to think about. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men 
I presume women as well, he was writing a long time ago, feels sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire, are you listening? If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, only to bring it to life so that I could find the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings and on the other hand never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a copy or an echo or a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must never, I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. He goes on to say later on in a book that he wrote about this, no, your desires aren't the problem. It is the weakness of your desires that are the problem. You are like a child fooling about in slums with your mud pies because you can't imagine what a holiday at the sea would be like. God has, all across the scripture, used desire as a means of drawing people into relationship with him. He promises to give us complete joy. He promises to give us hope. He promises that if we abide in him, our joy will be complete. He tells us that in serving him, there is joy. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, one of the most remarkable verses in the entire Bible about joy. The people of Israel have been confronted about their sin and their brokenness and their shame and their social fall and all the stuff that they've done wrong. And they're genuinely sorry to God. And they they cry out and say, we're sorry, forgive us. And the story says that they go away wearing sackcloth and ashes and mourning and crying and bewailing their weakness. They are full of self-pity and guilt. And Nehemiah shouts after them in Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10. And he says, go home and enjoy yourselves. You've dealt with this. And the joy of the Lord will be your strength. That verse is written on cards and posted to people and birthday greetings all over the world all the time. Do you know what it means? It doesn't mean that you will have some kind of joy that God gives you as a gift. What Nehemiah says is when you're in right relationship with God, when you're walking with him, when you are doing what he wants you to do, when you've surrendered your life to him, his joy becomes your experience. His joy, God's joy. God's great delight, God's happiness, God's abundant celebration of life becomes ours. Where could you get that? There wouldn't be enough E numbers in the universe to buy that. And that's what we're promised. In the 18th century, the American preacher Jonathan Edwards talked about the joy of God and the importance of it for those that he loved. Jonathan Edwards was a really, really dour preacher. And he was extremely small. And one night he preached a sermon in New Hampshire entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And they couldn't see him. 
It was one of those um, halls like our old church. Can you see me? Is that better? Can you see me? Raymond, you are now my test. Tell me when you can only see my head. Great. That's how he preached. With his hand there. And he read the sermon by candlelight. And he stopped halfway through it because he could hear noises. And he turned. Well, he didn't turn. He walked around the pulpit. And people were jumping from the balcony and crawling along the aisle to get to the front row because they knew they needed to get right with God. They realized that in him was life and hope and meaning and significance and value and worth and forgiveness and grace. Everything was in him. A revival broke out that changed America. What most people don't know, interestingly enough, that's not so much to do with what I want to say to you tonight. It's just an interesting fact is that a week later, he preached exactly the same sermon in a different church and nothing happened. God's anointing was resting on that man at that moment. And Edwards began to think, what is it that gives people joy? What is it that gives them worth and value? What is it about what happened on that night that God used so powerfully? And he came to the conclusion that as you look at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you see in them a joy, a love, an experience of life and commitment and honesty and vulnerability and hope that if we could enter into it and experience it ourselves, we'd never be the same again. Writing to a friend, he said this, I'm resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of, or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. I want to be happy. Let me ask you something. Has your Christian discipleship been built upon the concept that in order to be faithful, you must be miserable? What if God wants you to be content And the issue is not you being miserable. It is that you have satisfied yourself with the wrong things. And the misery is involved in letting go of the things that cannot bring you joy and embracing the things and the practices and the habits that can bring you joy. The challenge isn't joy. The challenge is where you're getting it from. There's a power in joy. In Luke 21, verse 16, Jesus warned his disciples that they might have be beheaded because of their faith, excuse me. And yet he comforted them that not a hair in their heads would perish and he would look after them. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, he warned them that discipleship meant self-denial and crucifixion. And he said, whoever loses their life for my sake in the gospels will save it. When he commanded them to leave all and follow him, he assumed that they would receive a hundredfold now with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Everything rooted in this promise of joy and reward. If we must sell all, we should do it, Jesus said, with joy because the field we aim to buy contains a hidden treasure. He's worth it all. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 and the parable of the field. He's worth it all. He's worth everything. He's worth everything. Knowing him 
is the greatest joy, the greatest delight, the greatest honor, the greatest privilege of our lives. And it's available to you and to me. The French thinker Blaise Pascal once wrote this, all men seek happiness without exception. They all aim at this goal, however different the means they use to attain it. They will never make the smallest move, but with this as its goal. This is the motive of all the actions of all people, even those who contemplate suicide. They are looking for peace. They're looking for joy. They're looking for something to hold on to. And God has told us that Jesus Christ is the source of that life. It's amazing. I'm going to tell you a couple of stories before we pull all of this together. Thomas Chalmers was a remarkable Church of Scotland minister. He was born towards the end of the 18th century and he died halfway through the 19th century. He was the founding father of the Free Church of Scotland after the great disruption in 1845. He preached a sermon about five years before he died entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Write it down. Honestly, I know it's a really long title. Write it down, find it on the internet, and read it. Now, you don't need to read it several times because it's not straightforward. The expulsive power of a new affection. Here's the premise. Christian discipleship, this is nearly 200 years ago. Christian discipleship has for far too long been built on the idea that God is carrying a big stick and he's ready to beat you. There's something more powerful than that can, that can motivate a changed life. And it is the promise of the joy of God. And here's how his sermon works, and then I'll try and explain it to you. Let's say tonight you are here and you've been struggling with a habit for years. You can't break it. Because somewhere in the habit, it's bringing you identity, it's bringing you meaning, it's bringing you purpose. It's satisfying an immediate desire in you. Whatever that habit might be. It could be any one of a number of things. I'll leave it to you to work out what it might be. And you've tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and tried to break the habit. And every time you try, it's all right for a little while, but then it comes back. And slowly over the years, you feel more and more and more guilty, more and more and more powerless, more and more and more useless, and more and more and more trapped. And your Christian life becomes a cycle of managing disappointment that you're not free. And nobody knows. Because you come to church and you raise your hands. You come to church and you give your offering. You're involved in all the ministries. You're doing all this stuff. But inside you, there is an internal battle that is raging that you can't get rid of. It might be your anger. It might be your lust. It might be your desire. It might be your um, um, social habits around smoking or drinking or spending or gambling. It might be violence toward your wife. It might be any one of a number of things. And you've tried and tried and tried to break it. And you can't break it. That's because you're trying to break it out of fear. You're relying on your own strength and you keep thinking, God hates this. I have to stop it. And if he hates this, he must hate me. 
Thomas Chalmers' sermon says, no, that's not the case. Replace that desire with the desire for God. Let him and all that he promises become more important to you than what you are doing now. Let the power of your future state change what you say yes to tonight. The promise of God's grace, the promise of God's mercy, the promise of an eternity with him. Let that promise give you the power to say no to the wrong thing and yes to the right thing. And it works. I'll give you an illustration. And before I do, I want to say it's got nothing to do. You'll understand why I say this in a minute. Those of you who are part of this church, it has nothing to do with any current circumstances in my family. I'm doing that to protect somebody. You'll understand in a minute and you'll laugh. It's got nothing to do with current circumstances in my family, right? Any of you ever had a teenager? Put your hand up if you've had a teenager or known one. Have you ever been one? And they all go through that period where their room looks like Armageddon. You walk into it and you have to wade your way through all the dirty stuff that's there. And life becomes a war. You can eat when you tidy your room. You can become part of this family when you tidy your room. Do you not know how to use the washing machine? Are you not able to bring one cup down the stairs? When was the last time you changed your duvet? You see those curtains, they open. (laughs) We've all been there, right? And you go on for months and 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 months. Not that I've ever been in this situation. (laughs) And nothing changes. And they just get more and more and more angry with you because all you're doing is telling them off. And then one morning, they come down. The room's tidy. They're showered. They've got gel in their hair. They're smelling like they stepped off a lynx ad. You think something's happened. What's happened? Anybody want to guess? They met somebody. That's why it's got nothing to do with these circumstances. See how I protected you, Matthew? I was very careful about that. I think I did that very well. Because I'm not talking about him. The new desire in their heart had the power to push the old desire out. I can stand here until I'm blue in the face and yell at you as your pastor. Live holy lives, live holy lives, live holy lives, live holy lives. And you will look back at me and say, will you stop shouting at me? I'm trying and I don't know how to and I keep falling. Then let me try something different. Let the love of God so consume your heart, so consume your mind, so consume your life, so consume your will, so consume your passions that you keep saying yes to him. And watch how everything else begins to be transformed by this great desire. That's what Paul meant when he wrote in Philippians 1. I want to know him more. Nothing is more liberating. Nothing is more life-giving. Nothing is more beautiful than watching somebody fall more deeply in love with God. And realizing that he is our satisfaction. 
He is all that we need. Everything that you have done wrong was carried by Jesus Christ on the cross. Every resentment, every hatred, every mistake, every anger, every habit, everything was carried by Jesus on the cross. And he says, I loved you enough to carry it. Now let my love do in you what nothing else can do. And it starts when you say, I need you. I want you. I am yearning for you. I figure that there are people be watching this online and in this room tonight, and your life has been blighted enough with habits that you can't break and sadnesses and sorrows that you can't carry. Nothing else has brought you happiness. Do you know what idols do? They promise you everything and they take everything from you instead. They promise you life and they deliver death. They promise you hope and they deliver despair. They promise joy and they deliver sadness. They promise hope and they strip you of everything bit by bit until you have nothing left. From the alcoholic to the gambling addict all the way through to the person who is absolutely obsessed with their own power and their own position. In the end, they end up with nothing. No one, no joy, no peace, no meaning, no happiness, no worth and no value. Only God can give you those things in a way that will last forever. And here's where my second story comes in. And I'm going to try and tell this to you. Those of you that are part of the church family here know that our family have gone through an awful lot of heartbreak and sadnesses and sorrows. After my brother Colin died in March 2016, having lost several others before that, I'm not going to go into the whole story. I sat in my study in London. In fact, I got on my knees. I'll bring it to church one day to show you. I have an old prayer stool that's soaked with the tears of saints from about 100 years. The leather on it is falling to pieces. It's smaller than this, and I was clinging to it, as I had done every day for weeks. My thumb marks are on each corner of it. And I said to God, I can't bury someone else that I love. I can't, it'll kill me. I can't say goodbye to somebody else. At that moment, you would expect God to say back to me, I'll comfort you and strengthen you, son. He whispered into my heart in a way that I didn't hear, but I knew he was speaking. Malcolm, you feel that way because people have your heart instead of me. And when you let me have the center of your heart, you'll never attend your best friend's funeral because he has died and rose again and will never die again. God was talking to me about the fact that I had allowed Matthew and Benjamin and Anna and Riona and Debbie and my mum and my brother Edward, my brother Bill, my sister Anne, 
my nephews and my nieces. I'd allowed them all to take a place in my heart that only God should have. And therefore I was being dominated by fear of losing them. Because I was taking my joy from them. And honestly, I think I realized in the weeks that followed that my family had become an idol to me. And that if you told me to choose God or them, I would have chosen them. And over the course of the next few months, we as a family worked that all through. I can never explain to you, and I don't mean to embarrass her, I very rarely do this, the power of a wife and a husband releasing each other to love God more. Not only than one another, but than our children. And saying, actually, everyone could go and I'd still have enough because I have Jesus. Some of you have lost your joy because you've gone through the darkest moments of grief. And God is not rebuking you, but he is gently saying to you, I am all you need. You can trust me with your sorrow. You can trust me with your heartbreak because you'll never attend my son's funeral. He is the only one who never abandons us. He's the only one that never leaves us. He's the only one that holds us. And I have one of my, I have one of my wives, I have my wife here. <laughs> I have my son here. And my other son and two daughters will no doubt watch this this week. I love them. I would lay my life down for them. But my joy is in the Lord. And six months after my, eight months after my brother died, my mum died. And the very thing that I told God I could not do, he asked me to do. And it was okay. Was I heartbroken? Yes. Am I heartbroken now? Yes. And I'm talking to you tonight a little bit as your pastor, although I know there are guests here as well. I have learned to see the world in deeper color. When I see blue now, it's full of blue. When I listen to music, it sounds more beautiful. When I see your faces, when I look at you, 
I see people full of possibility and hope and life. When I think about my own life, I feel as if the sorrow and the struggle has brought me to a place of freedom because I love him. And his joy is so deep it can carry you through anything. It can sustain you through the darkest moments of your life. He is enough. And I've come to the conviction that I think probably up until the last four or five years, a strong believer, a preacher, a teacher, loving God, filled with the Holy Spirit, all of those things, But I think somewhere deep in my soul, there was a niggling question. Would I still believe this if the bottom fell out of my world? Well, six times in two years, the bottom fell out of our world and the gospel still works. The cross is still the answer. Death didn't get the last word. And even the worst things that you face can be overcome when you experience God's joy. What is there not to like about that? And God opens his hand and says, would you like it? It is worth it. Shall we pray? Here in this place, And across the internet, move, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. You are present. We sense you. And our cry is, create in us new hearts, O God. and renew right spirits within us. Cast us not away from your presence and restore unto us the joy of thy salvation. And take not thy Holy Spirit from us.
In this room, before I talk to the people on the internet, in this room, if you have been a Christian, or you are a Christian tonight, and you know that you need God to restore your joy, No one else is looking. And it doesn't matter why you're in the situation you're in, but what you need is God's joy. Then whilst everybody's eyes are closed and heads are bowed, please would you raise your hand? Thank you. 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 You can take your hands down, folks. Who else? This is not an embarrassing moment. Thank you. Thank you. Looking across the balcony as well, folk have responded up there. Who else? Take your time. You're saying to God tonight, I want you to be the center. I want everything and everyone in my life to revolve around you. You know what you discover when you do that? You have more capacity to love your family. You have more capacity to be present and joyful. God doesn't take them away from you. He brings you closer when you bring in a right relationship at the center of it all. Who else? Is there anyone here tonight and you've never become a Christian, but tonight you want to? You've explored around the edges, you've teetered on around about the edges long enough. Tonight you think, I want a joy that will never leave me. I want cleansing that will go on forever. I want hope that will never be destroyed. Is there anyone? Put your hand up if you would like to become a Christian tonight. You will have space at the end of this service to talk to folk if you need to. Now, if you have responded to either of those invitations online, drop an email to one of two people. If you're under 18, then drop it to Pastor Davey. His email is davey at dundonaldelam.church. And if you're over 18, drop an email to Pastor Pip. His email is pip at dundonaldelam.church. And they will be able to help you. If you're willing and able, would you stand with me? Those of you that can't physically stand, I know will be standing in your hearts. We're here if you need us. There is no one like Jesus Christ. No one. And if you need our help, then let us know. We'll be at the door. We're here to serve you. We're here to support you. We're here to love you. If you need somebody to pray with you, we have a prayer 
um, session that takes place on Tuesdays from 11.30 until 1. Come and let somebody pray for you. We're going to be introducing prayer in some of the rooms around the building at the end of every service for those that need it so that you don't have to leave it or wait. We believe that God, by his spirit, brings life and freedom. The band are going to come and lead us in a beautiful song which articulates better than what I have been trying to say. God's heart. Can you sing with me? Christ is enough for me.